You are listening to sermon audio from Coggin Avenue Baptist Church. If you'd like to know more about us, check us out online at www.cogginchurch.org. I mean, what else can we say besides amen? Can we get up, give it up for God one more time, huh? Yeah. You know, sometimes having responsibilities on Sunday, you know, sometimes your pastor wishes he was out there in those moments when we are praising and singing and, you know, we're moving around doing things. But then sometimes I get a view that you don't get. And that view of watching you stand in eruption and praise when a believer celebrates the new life they have in Christ, that's something that's etched into my mind that I'll never forget. So thank you for being excited about the things that God is excited about. It's a great day. If you brought a copy of God's Word, you're going to need it. You're going to need it not only today, but every day that we gather together. Let's open in it to Matthew chapter 21. As we continue this series, if we take a little jaunt, if you will, on the path or the road to the cross in preparation of our Easter services. Today we stop at Matthew 21. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 17, 12 through 17. Have you ever had somebody mad at you? That's the nice way to say it. Have you ever made somebody mad and you thought it was about one thing, but then you realized later that it was about a whole other deeper, probably more important issue? This has probably never happened to you. It happens to me all the time because sometimes what I need is a more keen sense of awareness. This happens for me in relationships and in my family particularly. Sometimes it happens with my wife and sometimes it happens with my children. You know, sometimes I'll say something really dumb. I know that surprises you and it'll frustrate Tammy. But because of a lack of awareness in me, I'll just kind of let it go. Don't even realize it happens. And, and then I recognize that tone. Guys, you, you're, you know that tone that I'm talking about? None of you do. Your wives don't have that tone because uh, you're always doing things right, right? But then you, you recognize that look and you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> yep, did something wrong. And, and what my mind does is I end up apologizing for the last thing that I did. Whether I knew it was bad or not, I'm like, oh, that must be it. It's, the, it's that thing. Well, in reality, it wasn't that thing, right? It was something that happened a long time ago or a day before and it had probably been happening for a long time. Why does that happen to me? Maybe it happens to you. It's a lack of awareness. It happens with our children, doesn't it? We may be frustrated with our children because not only their lack of awareness, but lack of appreciation, maybe their lack of respect. And then that goes on, and we're frustrated with that. It shows itself in their lack of verbal appreciation. This is probably not familiar to any of y'all as me as a child, and it may show itself in the chores that you ask them to do. Either they don't do them at all, or by the time they do the chore that you've asked them to do, the tenth time, they kind of do it halfway or with a half-hearted effort. That goes on, like, let's say maybe a week or a month, and then finally, they don't take out the trash, right? And then, then you get frustrated, and you express your anger or your frustration. Your child may be like, whoa, why are you so mad that I just forgot to take out the trash this one time? In reality, it's not about that time that they didn't take out the trash. It's about the lack of respect in general, the lack of follow-through in general. Matthew chapter 21, verse 12, is a passage of Scripture known as the cleansing of the temple. 
And sometimes that illustration happens to me in the Bible that I, I, I think we come to Matthew 21 on occasion and we think it means one thing on the surface, cursory view of it, or it's about this kind of application, but in reality, it's about something much deeper. And because of a lack of contextual awareness or a cursory reading of the passage, we miss it. You're like, okay, just say what you mean. We come to Matthew 21 oftentimes for justification instead of personal application. We'll see the anger of Jesus, and we tend to use his anger in Matthew 21 in cleansing the temple to justify our anger. Can I just tell you, that's not the chief application of the cleansing of the temple. We can talk about anger. I talk about anger and use this as an illustration sometimes. But even when we take a cursory look at the text, and he's cleansing the temple, fashioning the whip, flipping over the tables, we tend to just take a quick look at it and say, oh, it's about commerce, or it's about commerce in the church, and, and therefore some people take a cursory look at this text, and they, they say, well, maybe we shouldn't be selling merchandise at the church. Maybe we shouldn't have cafes, and some people would say, well, that's why you don't have bookstores in the church. Church, can I just tell you, we, we got to stop and, and go a little bit deeper this morning. The cleansing of the temple, the temple is not chiefly about anger, nor is the chief application about commerce in the congregation. The chief application is about worship. That's the problem that Jesus had. The glory and honor of the worship that was due the God of the universe was being distracted and it was being manipulated for financial gain. That's the problem Jesus had. Let's stand together and dive in a little deeper. Matthew 21, verse 12. Now remember, probably a day earlier, Jesus just finished the, what we call the triumphal entry, the crowd out Hosanna, palms and jackets are laid on the ground. Here comes Jesus, and he entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. Notice it's both parties. And overturned the tables of money changers, and even the seats of those who were selling in doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers, or a robber's den. Immediately, verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna, the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, as a matter of fact, I do. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. This is God's word. Please be seated. One of the things that we cannot miss in this passage is that Jesus is showing himself as greater than the temple, which means he is worthy of worship. So my call for you today is to worship him with focus, however and wherever you worship him, and worship him with authenticity. Let's start with focus. Look at verses, uh, really, 12 and 13. Through Christ, worship God with integrity-filled focus. They had lost their focus in this temple scene. Now, I want to set it up for you. Jesus walks into the courts of the temple. Now, 
There's lots of things to know about the temple, but what I want you to pay attention to here is that there were multiple courts in the temple. And the deeper you got, the more holy or reserved it was, the less people could go. In this court of the temple, it was where everybody was. Most likely, scholars believe, this is the court of the Gentiles. So you had men and women and Jews and Gentiles alike. And and what did Jesus see? He saw what I would call accepted commerce in the outer court of the temple. Accepted because it didn't shock anybody to see a dove and sold if you needed to offer a dove as a sacrifice. Accepted that you would buy your lamb there if you needed a lamb without defect for the Passover celebration. You'd often just buy it on your way to the temple. The money changers expected. The temple only took Tyrian coinage. And if you came with any other kind of coin, as there was lots of different kinds of coinage of the day, they expected you to exchange that and you needed a money changer to do that. All of this was common. And out of nowhere, Jesus walks into what's an accepted practice. And other passages of scripture say he actually fashioned a whip and drove out those who were buying and selling. Those money changers, he flipped the tables of them. And, and those who were selling the doves, it says here that he literally took their seats from them. Notice nobody in the temple in that moment says, well done, Jesus. Yay, Jesus, I'm glad you did that. I think they were in shock and awe because this was an accepted practice for a long time. And on the surface, when I read this, it makes sense that these kinds of things were happening there. First of all, it was the perfect location. Right before you entered the temple, the court of the Gentiles, you had access to everybody. So it makes sense if there was going to be merchants that they were there. Also, the, the selling of lambs and doves, that's, you would expect that to happen. It would be hard for you to find not only a lamb without defect in your home, but if you were coming as a pilgrim from a long ways away, let's say 100 miles or so, it would be hard for you to take that lamb without defect and get to the temple and it still be without defect, right? And if you were a poorer family, you couldn't afford a lamb, You would need to bring a dove. Doves weren't exactly, I know they sit on trees, but they weren't exactly growing on trees on your way to the temple environment. So it makes sense that they were there. The money changers, they used Tyrian coinage because the amount of precious metal in the coins, the Tyrian coinage, was was very consistent. And so that's the kind of coins they wanted to use in the temple for you to buy something or to make offerings. So why was Jesus so appalled at this accepted practice? You don't have to wonder very long. Read with me. In verse 13, as Jesus is quoting Isaiah 56, 7, he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. It's more than just about the commerce. It was about distraction from worship and prayer that should have been going on. The commerce simply allowed that environment of distraction to happen. He was also angry at what I would call the nefarious intentions of some of those who were involved, whether it be a merchant or maybe even one of the chief priests and scribes. Have you ever been in a marketplace in a foreign country? Get your doves here. Doves on sale today. Get your price while they're hot, right? Or get your lamb here. You want to exchange money. I mean, lots of commotion and hustle and bustle. If I was doing that kind of thing the whole worship service long, you'd be distracted as well. It was creating a distraction. So those who gathered in the court of the Gentiles would have been Gentiles. They were supposed to be praying there. They were supposed to be worshiping there. How much prayer do you think could have been going on in the midst of all this commerce? Not a lot. In other passages, it says this, the temple is a house of prayer for the nations, not just for the male Jew, 
but the female, not just for the Jew at all, but also for those who are Gentile converts. So not a lot of worship could be happening in this outer court, and that's what Jesus is frustrated about, about the distraction. And I think the distraction probably went beyond the court of the Gentiles, maybe even to the next few courts, maybe even to the Holy of Holies. But I think it was more than just distraction. I believe God in the flesh was horrified at the wickedness that was going on in the temple. That's why he uses this phrase, you've turned God's house, it should be a house of prayer, into a den of robbers. Underline that. The, the term robber there is the Greek word that, be, that could be translated insurrectionist. The idea of overthrowing governmental or even godly rule. Maybe some of the leaders were using the temple for their financial gain instead of the worship of God. Now, that's a problem. Maybe some of the leaders and even the merchants were using the temple as a political platform and a political stronghold more than a house of worship or prayer. If so, this would be an insurrectionist activity centered on overthrowing the reign and the rule of God in exchange for the reign and rule of men. Anytime that happens, it's a major problem. God is the only one, church, who we should have as our focus in worship. I think even more likely there were some greedy merchants who were taking advantage of the situation. Can't you just imagine that dove merchant who waits all year long for the Passover celebration for those poor families that didn't have a lamb to offer and they didn't have any doves sitting around the house, so they come to the temple ready to worship and make their sacrifice, and he's like, oh, I got a dove for you, but I'm going to jack up the prices. Why? Because you need it and I have it. A simple supply and demand issue. It's ca capitalism gone bad in the house of the Lord. It's like paying a dollar for a Coke at a grocery store, but then when you go to the theme park, right, or maybe the football game, that Coke may cost you $5. That may be okay at Disney World Church, but it's not okay in the house of the Lord. Amen. They were taking advantage of the people that came there to worship. That's what Jesus is upset about. Some people were there for financial gain and not worship. And if they're there for that, even in our worship services today, there's a big problem. Again, the bottom line was, however you look at this text, the honor and the glory that was supposed to be given to God was being robbed from him because of the situation. So what did Jesus do? He cleaned house. <laughs> he removed barriers. I believe Jesus is still in the business of re removing barriers in your heart that are distracting you from worship. Jesus is still willing to clean house if your priorities go astray, if you will let him, and I pray that you let him today. Jesus took worship very serious, and so should we. Before we get too deep into the personal application, which there's plenty, the question probably for many of you as it was for me, does this context of the temple, and Jesus cleansing it, 2,000 years ago, just after the triumphal entry, on his way to the cross, does that have modern application for our congregations today? And I think, yes, it does. But does that mean that churches should not sell merchandise or sell gear or have cafes or bookstores? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Unless these things are about greed. Unless these things are actually distracting from people encountering the God of the universe and bringing worship to the king. Like always, when you're reading the New Testament, you have to ask, what's the heart? Otherwise, if you don't ask that question, you're going to go to the Sermon on the Mount, and it's going to become about a bunch of do's and don'ts. 
No, that's not what it's about. It's about the heart. In all of the New Testament, the same thing is happening here. I've bought many t-shirts, and I've, as a pastor, sold many t-shirts throughout my ministry career, and I've never seen it as distracting. If anything, a t-shirt, a, a coffee mug at your desk at work, a, a decal on your car, what can it be? It can be a conversation starter. Like, oh, what church do you go to? Or what does that phrase on your shirt mean? What's that cool design on your mug? Why do you have that sticker on the back of your car? And that conversation in the community could actually spark a gospel conversation or at least a church invitation. I've also bought hundreds of dollars, maybe even thousands of dollars worth of coffee and donuts and food at a church cafe. And I've never seen it being breaching the warning of this worship-centered text. Soon, we too at Coggin, we'll, we'll be, we have a connection cafe. We're going to be selling hats and t-shirts and all kinds of gear. But it won't be a distraction in worship. We're not going to make a profit off of it, and we're sure not going to take any advantage of anybody over it. We're hoping that that'll actually be a ministry to spark gospel conversations in your daily life. So beyond that view, is there any real application left for us as church? Yes, and now we're getting into what I would call the real convicting application from this text. Take the idea of Jesus calling this scene being full of a den of robbers. Take that term insurrectionist and let's ponder that for a moment. I believe many modern churches get into serious trouble when they create a distracting worship environment because they make their local congregations a platform for a political or a nationalist idea. That's a real problem. You want to know something that's off-putting to me way beyond a church cafe or a bookstore? It's using the pulpit or the platform of the congregation to worship a nation or to worship a political candidate. No. We're here to worship God which can guide you to a candidate and guide you to a political affiliation. But when we gather here, it's about him. He is the platform. When we distract from that, I think we're in danger of breaching the warning in this text. I also see churches and Christian ministries get into trouble. They get distracted and they lose focus when the leadership allows money or profits to overshadow gospel proclamation. You've seen these ministries before. Sometimes they're on TV late at night. Sometimes they're on the radio. And sometimes they're in communities that you know. And and it seems like these ministries, all they want to talk about is health, wealth, prosperity, and profit. How you can find gain and blessing in your life. How you can name things that you want and you can claim it and God has to give it to you. Many of these ministries proclamate something called the prosperity gospel. Something like Jesus died and rose from the dead so you can live a life full of wealth, health, and prosperity. The prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. The gospel is simple. It's repeated over and over in the New Testament. It's the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ so we can be saved and live a life for his glory. He's the one that lived that life that you couldn't. That's what we need to talk about. He's the one that paid the atoning sacrifice payment that none of you could make and none of us could afford. Me either. He's the one that died. He was the one that was buried. He was the one that proved that he was God by saying, I'm going to rise from the dead three days later, and he did it so that we could be forgiven 
if we would repent and believe. That's the gospel. That's our focus. Let me tell you, church, if you can discern that a ministry is using godliness or the gospel for financial gain, and that's their top priority, stay away. I'm not saying that money is evil, but the love of money and using the gospel and the church to feed the love of money, that is evil. That's what Jesus saw in the temple, and that's why he fashioned a whip. That's why he overturned the tables. That's what Jesus opposes. Sure, we need to talk about money. I'll talk about it when the Bible talks about it. God wants you to be faithful with his money that he's given to you to be a good steward of. And yes, the gospel consumes much money. From our very own budget here at Coggin, lots of dollars flow. But it doesn't mean that the ministry is about money. No, we use money and we leverage money for the ministry. There's a huge difference. When you use ministry to make it about money, that's about you, that's about me. But when we use money and point it to ministry, that's about him. That's how it's supposed to work, and that's what was not going on here. Also, I think we do need to limit distraction, not only in our worship services corporately, but we need to remove distraction in our worship privately. We strive hard. I work with the worship team every week to be excellent, not for excellence sake, but to honor God. We strive every week to remove as much distraction as we can. Are we perfect? No. (laughs) We're going to mess up, but that's what we're striving for. We want to make it about him. We want to remove distractions so that he gets the most glory that he is due. We're going to continue to do that. But what about you and your personal worship life? What barrier is in your heart to worship today or in your life right now? What's distracting you from your worship of God? Is it a love of money that keeps you so busy in the hustle that you can only come to church and take time with God on a sporadic basis? Maybe it's a preference that's constantly battling in your mind so that you can't sing without thinking about that. Maybe, maybe it's a pet sin that is distracting you and controlling you. Would you do the courageous thing as God asked me to do this week? Would you say, Lord, would you come in and search my heart and clean house where needed? Would you come in and show me those distractions and give me the power to remove them? Here's a convicting question. Maybe you yourself are or have been a distraction to others in their worship experience. What I mean by that is maybe you, you pretend one way on Sunday, but then Monday through Saturday, you're a whole different person. And that person that's observing you in your life would look at you and say, I don't know if that's what you call Christianity, but if it is, I don't want no part of it. Amen, right? God doesn't want that either. Do the courageous thing and ask God to help you be consistent that who you are on Sunday is who you are the rest of the week so people can see the glory of God in you. Not only does Jesus clean house and remove distraction and wickedness, what he's really doing here is disrupting the whole sacrificial system. I think some people in the temple saw that. Why? Remember, he's on the road to the cross. And on the cross, 
he shows that he is the Lamb of God. He is the ultimate sacrifice for sin. He is the replacement of the temple. And therefore, Jesus transitions right here in the verse 14 to show himself as God in the flesh, the long-awaited Messiah, as the one who is worthy of worship. Let's go there now. Look at verses 14 through 17. Worship Jesus and authentic appreciation for who he is. Who is he? God in the flesh. Who is he? The Messiah, King of the universe. Isn't it interesting that verse 13 transitions right to verse 14? As soon as Jesus finishes cleansing out the temple, the first thing that you read in the text that he does is he starts giving sight to the blind and he starts giving giving healing to the lame. He shows himself that he's worthy to receive the praise that is due to God alone and he receives it from these children. This is amazing passage of scripture. Right here in the temple, he starts healing people. If he were not God, you know what that would be? A distraction. Not much different than those who are buying and selling and doing commerce that he's already attacked. But he was God. And so it was appropriate. The children see it, but what blows my mind is the religious leaders miss it. The children start worshiping Jesus in the house where God was to be worshiped. They start giving glory to Jesus that only God was due. Why? Because Jesus is the glory of God in the flesh. It's right here in the text. I think there's also an important point to be made about the healings and the miracles that we see in the New Testament. There's so much controversy about that. Are they real? Yes. Did they happen? Absolutely. What are they there for? An example for us to follow? Mm. I'll tell you for sure what I know they're there for to show you the power of Christ and that he's worthy of your worship. Notice the people that Jesus healed, those who are blind that could now see, they're not even mentioned in the text. You know who is mentioned in the text? Not the people who received the healing, the one who did the healing. Every time you see a miracle in the New Testament, it's pointing to the power of Christ and salvation pointing to the fact that he is God in the flesh and he is the one that is worthy of worship. The children get it and they honor him and give him the due that he was owed. He also says later that he will destroy the temple and build it three days late, build it back up three days later. Was that a literal destruction? No, he's showing that he himself is the replacement of the temple, that he's the one who would die, be destroyed, and he's the one that would be rebuilt or rise from the dead. We illustrated that wonderful thing in baptism even today. I think what the children doing are significant. First of all, how Jesus interacted with the least of these is significant to me. 2,000 years ago, children were meant to be seen, but never heard. But because of those that were in leadership would not speak, the children, like we saw in the rocks last week, they cried out when nobody else would. They give him pure and true worship. The religious leaders of the day refused to acknowledge Jesus as the God-man, Messiah, and King, so the children had to. And what do they cry out? Hosanna to the son of David. You know this term, Hosanna. You've heard it before. It's, it, it's a term of honor and exaltation. They acknowledge what was true, and yet it was forbidden by the very ones that should have known better. These children see Jesus for who he is. And I tell you how they worship him. They worship him authentically. 
as children often do. Unashamed and unafraid. To me, this is just amazing. What do the religious leaders do? Because their hearts were hard and it threatened their business, they become furious and they ask Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Meaning, you need to stop them. I think Jesus could have asked them the same question. No, wait a second. Do you hear what these children are saying? Because what you are missing, they get it 100%. And he quotes Psalm 8 too. He says, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise for yourself. Jesus is saying the praise of these children is perfect because it is true. At this point, the religious leaders, the the scribes and the high priests, they're, they're at a fever pitch. I think if they could have crucified Jesus in this moment, they would have. Think about what Jesus has already done. They're probably thinking, you allowed people to call out to you, Hosanna, and lay palm branches down like you're a king as you came into the city. You disrupted the financial gain that we had going when you cleansed the temple. And now you're letting these children not only speak to you, but you're letting them cry out to you like you're the God-man Messiah. Jesus says, exactly. (laughs) He just owns it. They couldn't stop him because he had more to do on his way to the cross. It was not yet his time. Oh, church, would would we be willing to offer perfect praise like these children did? Jesus doesn't need the world's largest choirs. Jesus doesn't need perfect musicians. Though he deserves our best, he is satisfied with the authentic praise of our hearts. May we give it to him this Easter season. I think there's two things that you can build worship upon in this passage of Scripture, truth and authenticity. We see both of them from the children. Don't you love it when, te- when, when your children teach you lessons? <laughs> These children are teaching the adults lessons in this passage of Scripture. They worship him in truth, and so should we. What do I mean by worship Jesus in truth? Seeing, desire to sing things about Jesus that reflect the trueness of who he is. When you speak about Jesus in the community, say things about him that are reflected as truth in his word. I work with the worship team, like I told you earlier, every week, and we desperately, both Matt and Ron and the choir and the pastoral staff, we desperately try to sing things that Jesus wants to hear, which means that he's revealed about himself and his word. This is important to us. Are we perfect? No. But when we see some untruth in a song, we won't sing it. Or we'll change it to reflect your truth. This is something that we desire in our worship ministry, and it's going to be a clear expectation for our next worship pastor. Second, you not only can build upon truth by worshiping in truth, but you can build upon authenticity. These children were authentic. I want you to know, in our worship services, what we're not going for is slick. That's not what we're going for. We're going for authentic and excellent for his glory. When you worship in song, can I just encourage you to be like these children? Be authentic to you. When you worship and you feel the need to raise the hand, you just raise it. When you feel the need to do that courageous thing and put your arms at 11, both hands, you just do it. Sometimes I get so caught up in worship, I can't raise my hands or even sing. And so I worship the Lord from my heart with tears flowing down my face as I listen to you sing. That's okay. 
I promise you, if it's okay for me, it's okay for you. Sometimes I have to just stop and sit there in a worship service and ponder the truth of that song. If that's what you need to do, do it. Just don't sing the words and let them be empty. And don't make an effort to bring attention to yourself and distract others in worship either. This not only goes for when we sing together, church, I think it goes for everyday life. Here's something that I learned a long time ago that was like a paradigm shift. That worship is not isolated to an hour on Sunday. Worship is not isolated to songs that we sing. You worship every day in every part of your life. Your life is worship. Was it worship in the garden when Adam and Eve cared for God's creation? Yes, it was. And it's worship when you put in the hours at your job. It's worship when you are at school. It's worship when you are at home with your friends and your family. So be authentic. Don't pretend at church and be something different during the week. And I'm going to say this, and I want to translate what I mean. We like to say this in our society, so I'm going to use that colloquial statement. You be you in worship. Like, What does that mean? Here's what it means. Be the best version of who God wants you to be that is natural to you. Every day. That's authentic worship. Don't be distracted. Worship in truth and be authentic. If you are worshiping your life and you worship in song and you're distracted or you're allowing corruption to creep in, again, be courageous. Ask Jesus to clean house. That's what I'm going to ask him in this next song. I pray that you would do it with me. I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a song of invitation. During that song of invitation, you need to let God deal with you where you are. If you're here today and you don't have a church family or a church home and God is calling you to membership, we welcome something like 30 members last week. We've got a great process. We'd love to walk you through that process so you can actively, actively be a member of what God's doing here. Maybe for you, it's a decision unto salvation. Maybe God is calling you even through this message of Jesus cleansing the temple that you need to repent, you need to believe, and today you need to be saved. But maybe during this next song of invitation, you just need to close your eyes, pray that courageous prayer. Lord Jesus, would you come into my heart and clean house? Would you stand with me? We'll pray, then we'll sing. Lord, I don't know why I'm always so nervous to welcome you in to take control. It's always better for me when I submit to you. So we welcome you into our hearts today. And it's not only courageous, it's beneficial to ask you to come in and to search in all those hidden crevices of our hearts and find the distraction and show it to us and then we take it and just give it to you. God, if you're moving in here in the life of someone who's yet to repent and believe, God, you do what only you can do. We pray that you would soften that heart. You would convict that soul. You would bring about repentance and salvation. God, that's something only you can do, but we pray for you to do it. I pray for the individual that's here today that needs to receive salvation, that they would be open to it. And God, for the rest of us, as we sing this song together, help us to see you as worthy. Worthy of our focus.
and worthy of our authentic worship. And we give it to you, not just in song, but in life for the rest of this week. It's in Jesus' name, everybody said. Thank you for listening to this episode of our Coggin Church podcast. We exist to make disciples by leading people to connect with God, with others, through service to the world. For more information about Coggin, visit us at www.cogginchurch.org.